Hi, welcome to the Freudcast. Paul Rose wears many hats as an explorer, an adventurer and a broadcaster. Paul is a man at the front line of exploration and one of the world's most experienced divers, field science and polar experts. He helps scientists unlock and communicate global mysteries in the most remote and challenging regions on the planet. Freud's Laura Rounds spoke to Paul for this episode where they discussed the power of exploration, how we can meet the goals of protecting nature and biodiversity and the importance purposeful partnerships can play. Laura began by asking Paul what it's like being an explorer and why he pursued it as a career. Well, being an explorer is all about having that curiosity that you had when you were a kid and that we all have that natural curiosity. How does this work? What does that taste like? What does it feel like to do this? What is it like to go somewhere and experience that? We've all experienced that. And it creates a sort of natural energy or tension within us. And I think being an explorer is keeping that going and even fostering that natural curiosity. So instead of shutting it off and thinking, well, um, you know, I've got this anxiety to be there or feel that or experience that myself and have a look at it myself. Instead of thinking, well, I better shut that off and carry on with my career, classic education, whatever set of tracks that we may be on and just follow it. So that's what I've done. Um, and it means that there is a sense of being an explorer, even if I'm with to places where people have already been, people have been there, they've been to the top of that mountain, but I haven't. And I want to be up there. And as the scientists say, ground truth it. I want to ground truth it myself. So that's, that's my life. That's what I felt as a kid. I really was having trouble in school. I was one of these Anxious kids jumping up and down constantly wanting to be out there. Yeah. And when I was, you know, 11 years old, there was that being outside and doing sports and being away from school were things I was really good at. Brilliant. So give us a flavour of what, what you have explored to date. Well, yes. Well, I've been, because I've followed my my, my nose and that anxiety within me, um, I've been working around the world, mostly in the polar regions and in the deep sea. Um, I mean, a high point of my polar career was being the base commander for the British Antarctic Survey for 10 years at Rothera Base. Um, for that um, and for other work in Antarctica, I was very lucky to be awarded Her Majesty the Queen's Polar Medal. That was quite some day. Incredible. <laughs> so you can't mention polar work without slipping in that I did get the polar medal. So I've enjoyed working for the British Antarctic Survey and the American National Programs in Antarctica and National Science Foundation. That's been a terrific part of my career. And I've even led um, uh, trips on um, cruise ships down to Antarctica as well. You know, you see these people, they see these trips advertised where anyone can access Antarctica. Um, and I think that's a great thing. So I've been on those uh, as a speaker and as a guide. And then in the Arctic I've worked mostly for science um, for NSF on the Greenland Ice Cap National Science Foundation, collecting ancient methane. And then oh. I've led uh, ice cap crossings, you know, following Fritjof Nansen's route across Greenland all the way across, a 30-day straight line, mindless physical grunt, which I happen to be very good at, um, and climbing new mountains in Greenland. It's wonderful to be on top of Gumbionfjell, the highest peak in the Arctic, and look around and realize that about 80% of the peaks that you can see um, are not only unclimbed, but they're unnamed 
and unmapped. So it's amazing to do big yeah. journeys in Greenland. And similarly, in the polar region uh, for uh, National Geographic Pristine Seas, for which I'm the expedition leader, I've led the uh, Franz Josef Land expedition in, in Arctic Russia and also the Northwest Passage expedition at Lancaster Sound. So, yeah, I've worked a lot in the polar regions. I love it. I like the cold places. <laughs> you have explored a lot indeed. It's amazing. Really and in the incredible. sea, you know, it's been a similar, similar, fortunately, with a project like Pristine Seas or filming with BBC Oceans uh, or Voyages of Discovery, you end up in parts of the ocean that most people don't get to. It's quite yeah. something to, you know, roll off the boat after all the planning and you roll off the boat on that first dive with no one, no one's ever seen it before. It's an amazing feeling and it never gets old. Yeah, amazing, very inspiring. And one of the things I know you do is um, you care a lot about inspiring future generations. And uh, you, uh, when you are out at sea or wherever you are, on top of a mountain or at sea, you... Um, you engage with students live from from where you are so how does that work well that's a real dream laura because you know my early expeditions uh, well even as recently as 10 years ago you know i'd be working with scientists who were desperate to get news out results out initial results out but would have to wait till we got back to the base or back to port before you could send anything but now with you know with the benefit of the the way the internet works we were able to record uh, report directly from the expeditions and that's great we use a great friend of mine called joe grabowski uh, who for national geographic runs a project called Ex explorer classroom and when I'm at sea, before we leave the dock or maybe during the first day, we can broadcast and communicate and answer questions from hundreds of classrooms around the world. And that's a load of fun because I can have behind me the captain and the cook or the whole team and we can have a good discussion. They can have great questions. As you know, questions from the young ones are brilliant. So we have a big 45 minute session with all of them. And then at the end of the expedition, or very near the end, we do the same again so we can report on our findings. It's a, it's a brilliant thing. It's one of the best investments we can do. Yeah, no, that's, that, that, that's, that's really cool. And it's one of the things um, that I think has become a bit more, um, what we've become more aware of is, is the need to be in touch with nature. And, and as a society, we seem to have sort of lost that over previous um, decades. And um, that is quite a nice way to try and inspire the younger generations and, and educate them about this. But what, are you, what is your feeling about, um, you know, especially run up to COP26, are you optimistic that people are becoming more you know, aware of the importance of nature and, and feeling more connected to it? I am optimistic. Um, I'm optimistic by nature, but I'm especially optimistic during this period because of COVID, we've now never seen such a high level of awareness about the value of nature. You know, COVID arrived into our lives as a pandemic because of our out of balance relationship with nature. Fortunately, fingers crossed, we've got this vaccine now, don't we? You know, we, we do have a vaccine, but the, the only true vaccine against future pandemics is to readdress our balance with nature. We need to reset that. And that's been big news everywhere. And people see that and they go, wow, we need to look after nature. So even if they no, never got the idea about loss of biodiversity and habitat loss and climate change, suddenly it hits home. It's our health, you know, and it's a, it's a beautiful story. You know, our health relies on everybody else's health, which in turn relies on the health of nature. 
So we've never seen such a high level of awareness. So that means that as we go into COP26, the UK, we're hosting it. And as you know, we're one of the signatories to the high level ambition, which is to um, uh, you know, protect 30% of the planet by 2030. We're showing great leadership there. And even better in many ways, you know, if you don't get the health story or the climate change story, then people get the money story. And I've been absolutely loving these stories that no matter what it costs to protect 30% of the planet by 2030, the financial return is about five to one. And you go, mm. well, okay. So I, I am optimistic and I, I wish everybody all the best. Well, that is, yeah, I, I do share that optimism. And I think especially this year with COP26, you can tell, uh, you know, a lot of financial institutions and and other, especially the private sector, are far more engaged uh, in this topic. And I just wondered what sort of experience you've had um, in your capacity as an explorer and your work through National Geographic with the private sector. You know, what sort of partnerships have are you have you been able to create, or are you interested in in exploring? Forgive the pun. <laughs> Yeah, well, both um, we we are uh, fortunate is that we've got you know our project you know National Geographic Pristine Seas is a big project it's hugely successful and so we do attract funders uh, which is good news and we have got a lot of very good fruitful uh, beneficial both ways partnerships and in my work uh, with the uh, banking sector and uh, other speaking engagements I've seen a big uptake in the um, ESG. Uh, funding and investments and, you know, natural capital, uh, you know, conservation funding, conservation markets. It's, it's, it's a good to see this because, you know, you and I were together in Davos and I remember sitting in the front row for Prince Charles's launch of the Great Reset, you know, the conservation markets with WEF. And you realize, wow, that's really happening. There's a big uptake on it. And I enjoy really, I am no ESG expert, that's for certain, but I do know where the numbers come from. And it's a delight to celebrate that unseen thread that exists between someone taking weather or water samples every three hours on a remote beach somewhere and the link that has with driving global economies. It's really great. So, yeah, I think this is all part of my um, optimism. So, yes, so the, the banking sector, unrelated, is going really well. And the partnerships for conservation work is very strong indeed. And, and naturally, that's a great place for us to be. From your experience, what makes a good partnership, in particular with private sector and companies um, and NGOs or organisations that you are involved with? Well, good partnerships are easy and fun. I love when we're maybe talking quite big sums of money and committing events and there's a sense of ambition and risk. And yet you look around and you go, wow, this is easy and it's fun. So that, and for it to be easy and fun and, of course, effective, it's got to be a good natural fit. You know, gone are the days of what we used to call greenwashing and which, of course, we can now call bluewashing as well, where a company would attach itself to some NGO's message and carry on as normal. Now, you know, consumers are smart, we're smart, and there's a meaningful link between the global issue or event that is occurring and what that business is developing or doing or what their actions are. And I think that's really great. So it doesn't take long these days to find those links and work out where it is. And some of the best partnerships I've been on is I've been at sea or been in a polar region or been somewhere, and I feel as if that commercial partner is with me. 
and I and I have done it, and I say it to a lot of our future partners. I can't wait for the day when I pick up the phone somewhere because I'm just so excited to see the project come into life that I really do physically want you with me. So I'll pick up the phone and have a chat. So that they're the ones where they're they're you know they're with us, and that what makes them so. It wants to be fun, easy, effective. They want to sort of vicariously be with us and hard line link between their activities and the global issue that we're working on. And you mentioned the great reset and we're now in the you know, UN decade of action and uh, there's a particular focus on, on ocean protection. And here um, in the UK, uh, obviously David Attenborough is a, you know, a national hero and uh, his documentaries have done it huge amount um to generate interest and, and awareness about about the topic and, and particularly plastic pollution in in recent years what um what do you think is is needed um and are you also concerned about the current covid pandemic where we've seen an actually an uptake in, in plastic consumption well, I think with plastics, again, we've never seen such a high level of awareness. I, I can't go to any school anywhere in the world without seeing a plastics display. Maybe it's a piece of art. Maybe it's a, uh, some display of what they found on the beach or on the river yesterday. Um, so the awareness is high. We're getting there. We've got some great opportunities through business. I work with two businesses who are doing great things, one um, in Croatia, one in uh, uh, Ljubljana, and one in England, who are doing amazing things with the way that plastic's recycled. And that's a big step. And it's, it's, the, it's the classic thing where, you know, recycling this horrible plastic and fishing nets and God knows what else, all these things that couldn't be recycled and turning them into very desirable goods manufactured by all the top brands. So they become desirable. It feels a bit like a circular economy because we get it from the sea, get it from the beaches. It turns into this fantastic, desirable fashion wear, um, which is one enormous step but we've got to stop getting it into the environment in the first place, and that's behavioural change. I do believe we're getting there. I grew up in Romford, Essex, and it wouldn't be unusual for me to walk behind people and see them undoing the plastic cellophane from uh, cigarettes and throwing it on the floor and for people to throw, you know, Mars bar wrappers around and having those. Well, now we don't see that. It truly is socially unacceptable. I think we're getting there. When I led the... Um, Port of London Authority Cleaner Thames campaign. One of my jobs was to walk along the embankment and follow people with their rubbish and see what they did with it. <laughs> and, you know, <laughs> making sure that were they going to put it in a bin, were they going to put it on top of an already over full bin so the wind would blow it in? And then I would interview them, and that was quite enlightening, you know. The, so you never know, it's this behavioural change. I think we're getting there. We've got some great opportunities for business and all these things of a circular economy, the proper recycling, a sense of technical solutions and a sense of true behavioural change. We are getting there. So I am optimistic, but wow, what a big job. Absolutely. And, uh, well, yes, and, and we haven't even scratched the surface on, on biodiversity. Um, what, uh, what are you hoping to see or what do you think from your experience, you know, needs to be done um, to protect to protect our biodiversity. It's amazing. We haven't hit any of our 80 targets. We just haven't hit those targets. Um, and I'm hoping that the situation is now bad enough that 
it's brought to life. You know, we're lazy, aren't we? We don't change unless we have to. So we look at COVID uh, and go, you know, this is a big human health issue. It's affecting me. I better do something about it. Um, other other times you look you you look at these. I don't know if you you remember E. O. Wilson. You know, the great you know the, the, the mm. genius, you know, legendary conservationist E. O. Wilson with his half Earth hypothesis that we yeah. need to protect at least half the Earth. Well, thirty percent is seen as a waypoint to half Earth, 50% by 2050. And I keep hearing this lovely term now that we've already reached half Earth. We can't afford to lose any more biodiversity at all. And that's coming onto the mainstream. And I'm hoping it'll hit COP26. COP and I'm hoping that we really see a sea change there. So although I've got every reason to be gloomy about biodiversity, it's now so terrible, I can't believe we're going to ignore it. Um, and then, of course, there's COP15, uh, on biodiversity, which China is hosting this year. So there'll be uh, that, be really inter- interesting to see what countries uh, commit to there. Do you have a sense of what uh, what countries are building up to? Well, when it comes to China and conservation measures, you know, the world is watching. You know, the COVID, COVID-19 arrived and the world immediately started to look for answers. And where do we look? Well, you know, where it came from, we look for China. And here we here we are with, um, you know, November, isn't it? Or is it October? I forget, when, like, later this year when the world is there. The world is watching and looking for leadership and looking for answers. And China's the place. So come on, this is where we want to see action mm-hmm. and sensible leadership. On the way to that, we've got something called the International Day for Biodiversity, which is 22nd of May. Uh, When it occurred last year, we ran the Global Biodiversity Festival around those dates, three days around the world, big global biodiversity festival, virtual, of course, and produced a book, 68 countries, 60-odd speakers. It was an amazing event. Well, this year, we've upped the ante, and um, in cooperation with the UNCBD and the wonderful Elizabeth Marima, who's the Executive Secretariat, uh, we're running another three-day Global Biodiversity Festival, May 21st to 23rd. And this year, we're going to be non-stop, 72 hours around the world, which means we can better serve all time zones. We're across all seven continents. We've got live feeds from the Arctic and from Antarctica and all the other continents. And um, we're ex- we've got uh, translation services. We've got regional hosts. So there'll be about 100 and something speakers quite a few hundred thousand people turning in and we'll produce another book. So, you know, it's our small bit to support the uh, UNCBD. And I would say all eyes are on China towards the end of this year. Fascinating. And so finally, what can, and I don't want to speak for everyone, but, you know, as I mentioned at the start, couch potatoes or people who aren't sort of, you know, as drawn to uh, brave enough to explore or dive dive in the deep seas or climb the mountains what can we do to to contribute to all of this well firstly it's so easy to be engaged these days you know with the net and with online you know 24 hour you know 24 7 news reporting and all the rest it's very easy to become aware of a subject so if it's something that people that it, that it rings with, let's say it's plastic or let's say it's overfishing or climate change, whatever it might be, loss of biodiversity, then there's no excuse for us not being at least broadly across the issue. And then what do you do about that? Well, remember the power of being a voter. 
you know, we vote, we vote in school principals often, we vote in council members locally, we vote in politicians, we vote in chair, chairs of boards. And when we look at voting these people in, let's look at their values. Instead of asking what party they belong to, let's ask what their environmental values are. What do they do? And it's not good enough to accept, well, I put in so much money per year to support a certain NGO. What we really want to see is, well, I took six months out and I did this, physically and practically did this. And I live my life by these kinds of values. They're the people we want as leaders. So remember that. And remember when we buy stuff, because when we buy things, we influence people. So why buy that car? Why buy that computer? Why buy that mortgage? Why buy that holiday? Please inspect everybody's values first. And I think that alone begins to uh, generate change. And, and you can then say, I'm actually doing something about it. Very good points worth remembering. Thanks to Paul and to Laura and to you for listening too. You can hear other fascinating Freudcasts in the usual places and find out what's coming up on Freud's LinkedIn and Instagram profiles. I'm Matt Barbette. Bye for now. <laughs>